a little embarrassed to admit it, but I do not have, I've been here 15 years and I do not have a black and gold tie. So I wore the next best thing. And it's not Wolfpack Red. I saw some Wolfpack coming in. And yes, I did listen to the sermon last week. And it was particularly good. Probably because he used my mic. (laughs) One of our um, strongest motivations as people is self-preservation. Scream fire in a movie theater or bomb in an airport and see what happens. Actually, I suggest you not do that. Yell four on a golf course and watch everybody duck. Self-preservation is defined as the instinctive need to do whatever is necessary to survive danger. Some of you remember the story of Aaron Ralston. He was that guy who was hiking in Utah and while climbing a particularly steep canyon was trapped by an 800-pound boulder which became dislodged and landed on his hand. It was a bit gruesome, but after five days, he sawed off his own arm, kind of mid-arm, to survive. His autobiography is appropriately called Between a Rock and a Hard Place. Self-preservation drove him, and we admire that so much so that um, when Aaron did whatever was necessary to survive, we made a movie about it, called it 127 Hours, which is how long he was trapped. So much so that when people in the military act contrary to this instinctive need for self-preservation and put their own lives at risk for, other, for the sake of others, they might win our nation's highest honor, the, the Medal of Honor. In the history of the United States, there have been some 3,500 Medal of Honor recipients awarded to a person who has displayed conspicuous gallantry or valor above and beyond the call of duty. So the recipient has put his or her life on the line in danger with selfless disregard um, for the good or for the sake of others. They, 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 they set aside that instinctive need to survive to help others survive. They, they run into danger, bullets flying, um, to protect their comrades. Interesting to note that most medals of honor... Uh, honor are, have been awarded posthumously. That is, the recipient did not survive while others did. You see, this is, this is so unusual, this is so counterintuitive that we, we rightly give someone a medal for it, rewarding their self-sacrifice. So, what would you do if you were caught between a rock and a hard place? Between saving yourself and, and, and sacrificing yourself, is, is it going too far to say that this selfless disregard, putting your life on the line for another, is an evidence of a godly life? Now, I'm not suggesting that every Medal of Honor recipient has been a Christian, but, but is self-sacrifice a Christian 
virtue. Of course, we remember the words of, of Jesus. Greater love is no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. And so we would at least say that sacrificing yourself for, for another evidences great love. We've been in a study of the life of Joseph. You, you remember the main point of the story is to get Jacob, his family, those 12 sons and their, their families to Egypt where God was going to make a great nation of them. Let me remind you where we are in this process. Joseph, a boy of 17, was the favored son of Jacob. He had even received that coat of many colors from dad, which served as a constant reminder to his 10 older brothers, I'm the favorite, you're not. Of course, uh, Joseph didn't help his own cause. It was a bit of a tattletale, bringing a bad report about his brothers to, to daddy. And then he had a, a couple of dreams which highlighted his own um, fanciful superiority. The, the brothers eventually got fed up with this whole mess, decided to get rid of Joseph. They were going to kill him. Talk about sibling rivalry. But one of the brothers, Judah, don't forget that name, he's the emerging leader of this group, suggested that they sell Joseph uh, into slavery. This would accomplish their goal of getting rid of the little brat and line their pockets at the same time. In the meantime, they went back and told dad that, hey, Joseph was apparently mauled and killed by a wild animal. And by the way, this emerging leader, Judah, In the next chapter, in addition to finding out that he was selfish, we find he was also quite the immoral man as well. Well, We leave the brothers to to now follow Joseph's life a bit in Egypt. He was sold to Potiphar, the captain of Pharaoh's bodyguard. Joseph does a great job. Everything in Potiphar's house prospers. But he was then falsely accused of attempted rape by Mrs. Potiphar, found himself unjustly in prison. Things are are going from bad uh, to worse. In prison, he interpreted the dreams of two of Pharaoh's um, officers, the the cupbearer and the baker. And the interpretations happened just like Joseph predicted. But the cupbearer, who was the one who was um, uh, restored to his former position with Pharaoh, forgot Joseph for two full years. We said that's kind of like a, that's been a thread that's been running through this story. Have you ever felt forgotten by God, with all of the bad things going on in your life that God just doesn't know where you are. Things have gone from bad to worse. It has now been 13 miserable years. Finally, finally good news. Pharaoh himself has a couple of of dreams. Only Joseph could interpret them. The, the, The dreams we find were given by God, who was showing Pharaoh what he, God, was about to do. There's going to be seven years of agricultural abundance, followed by seven years of famine. Joseph recommended that Pharaoh appoint a very wise man to collect one-fifth of those bumper crops to prepare for the famine. Who was wiser in all of Egypt than, than Joseph? He was then promoted to be the prime minister in the land. He was he was Egyptianized. He was given an Egyptian appearance, remember that? And, and given an Egyptian name, even an Egyptian wife who bore him two sons. 
Seven years of abundance, come and go, just like that in a few verses, followed by seven years of famine. We find this famine affected not only Egypt, but also Canaan. It's now been over 20 years since Joseph was brutally and shamefully mistreated by his brothers. Well, the the story, the scene of the story switches back to the brothers and and, and Daddy Jacob. They're hungry in, in, in Canaan. They hear about food in, in Egypt. So Jacob sends the 10 brothers south to, to buy some food. Notice, 10. Interestingly, Joseph does not send the youngest son, Benjamin, who has apparently become the new favorite son, because we all know that the youngest in the family is typically the f- spoiled favorite. 10. I'll say that next service when the youngest in the family, my brother, is here. Ten, ten brothers go to Egypt, and who should they encounter but Joseph? Uh, of course, since it's been over 20 years, since they would have expected Joseph to be a slave or, or dead, and since Joseph appeared as, a, as an Egyptian prime minister who spoke through an interpreter, they didn't recognize him, but he recognized them. And oh, about this time, vengeance would taste especially sweet. He accuses the brothers of being spies. They say, we're not spies, we're, we're honest men, all sons of one man. In fact, there are 12 of us in all. Youngest still back with that in, in Canaan. He, you know, he's the new favorite. But the old favorite, he's no more. Joseph treats them harshly. Very interestingly, the brothers about this time, begin to suspect that they were in big trouble because of their sin against Joseph. Joseph throws them into prison for three days. That had to feel especially good. But, but, but then he lets them out, and, and he keeps only Simeon. He binds them, binds Simeon before them. It sends them back to Canaan with a much-needed provision. He also tells them, you will not see me or your brother Simeon again unless you bring that youngest brother back to me. You know, I, I, to prove you're not spies. To make matters worse, the brothers on the way back find the money for the food that they, that they, had, that they had bought had been mysteriously returned to their sacks. Now they are convinced God is doing this to us because of our sin against Joseph. You see, we've actually titled chapters 42 to 44, The Awakening of Conscience. Y- yes, God is, is moving this chosen family down to Egypt, but, but they need some serious work in the process. He is, he is bringing about some much-needed repentance on the part of the brothers. But at this point, all they feel is sorry for the way they treated Joseph. They are even beginning to understand that they might be facing some divine retribution because of their actions. But here's the question, is this full repentance? Has there been a change of heart that produces a change of action? You see, because when when God changes your heart, there's supposed to be a change of action. You're supposed to be different than you were 20 years ago. What will will the brothers do when presented with another opportunity to get rid of another favored son? 
And get back to Canaan. Jacob says, over my dead body, you will take Benjamin back with you back to Egypt. As far as I'm concerned, Simeon can rot in prison. You will not take my little baby boy from me. The stage is being set. The, the, the brothers had mistreated Joseph, the old favorite. What will they now do with the new favorite? Brought us to chapter 43, the last time we were together in our study. Family ran out of food in Canaan. So Jacob sends the boys back to get some more. He reluctantly sends Benjamin with them. Very interestingly, Judah, the emerging leader, says, Hey, Dad, I'll be responsible for him. If I don't bring him back to you, I will bear the blame before you all the days of my life. Now, at this point of the story... As we're reading along, we should be screaming at the pages. No! Don't do it, Jacob! This is the guy who sold the other brother in Egypt. Don't do it. He'll leave Benjamin in Egypt. They arrive in Egypt. And Joseph has them, the prime minister has them brought to his house. They think we're in trouble for that money which had mysteriously appeared uh, in our grain sacks. But no, Simeon was returned to them, and they feasted with Joseph. And the amazing thing was, during this feast, they were all seated from oldest to, to youngest. How did, the, how did the host know that? This is getting really weird. Not only that, the host gave Benjamin, the youngest, you know that favorite, five times as much food. How will they respond brings us to chapter 44. Let me give you the outline of the chapter as the story is now racing to its climax. We're going to see the, the, the plant in, in the first 13 verses and then penance. And by penance, I'm talking about the actions that prove true repentance. And we're going to find it from the most unlikely of brothers. Here's my question for you this morning. Do, do your actions, do your actions prove a, 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 a selfless disregard do, do, do they prove that you are a different person than you were before God became operative in your life? Begin by reading those first 13 verses to see the plant. Then he, that's Joseph, commanded his house steward saying, fill them in sacks with food as much as they can carry and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack. Put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest and his money for the grain. And, and he did as Joseph told him. As soon as it was light, the men were sent away, they with their donkeys. They had just gone out of the city and were not far off when Joseph said to his house steward, Up, follow the men. And when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is not this, that is the cup, is, this, is not the cup the one from which my Lord drinks and which he indeed uses for divination? You have done wrong in doing this. So the steward overtook them and spoke these words to them. And they said to him, Why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. We're honest men. Behold, the money which we found in the mouth of our sacks, we have brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? With whomever of your servants it is found, let him die. And we will also be my Lord's slaves. Now, the steward said, 
Uh, now, now let it be according to your words. He with whom it is found shall be my slave, and the rest of you shall be free. You, you'll be innocent. That's not exactly what they said. And then they hurried. Each man lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack. He searched, beginning with the oldest and ending with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. It's actually in the emphatic in the, in, in the Hebrew. The cup. Then they tore their clothes. And when each man loaded his donkey, they returned to the city. Next morning, as the brothers leave for Canaan with those provisions, it had to be a, a happy little entourage. I mean, they got all 11 of them. They got Simeon and they got, they got Benjamin. But we... The readers know the silver was again returned to the mouth the other sacks. I've suggested that these brothers are not too bright. You would, have, you would think that they would have checked their sacks before they left. They didn't. Now, not only was their silver returned, but Joseph gave instructions for his silver cup, the one he used for divination, to be placed in Benjamin's sack. He is setting up Benjamin, or more rightly, he's setting up the brothers. But we have to actually pause here for just a moment and ask the question, what exactly is this cup uh, for divination? That's kind of strange. Well, it was, it was a practice throughout the ancient Near East called uh, Lycanomant. Lycanomancy, or hydromancy, or oleomancy, all kinds of words like that. You would t what you would do is you take some liquids, typically a cup of water, and mix it with another liquid, usually oil, because oil and water don't mix. Sometimes you'd throw some gold in to appease the gods. Then the, the resulting patterns would be red. Different figures represented good or bad omens. You see, there were, there were even books that told you what certain patterns meant. It, this, this divination was used to discover things unknown, to foretell the future. For example, do the resulting patterns tell of peace or, or war, uh, of success or failure, of progeny or no progeny, of uh, a restoration of health or continued sickness? Now. Why was Joseph involved in this um, practice of divination? After all, Leviticus 19 says very clearly, do not practice divination or sorcery. Leviticus 19 says divination is detestable to the Lord. In, in fact, we read that this divination was one of the main reasons that the inhabitants of Canaan were driven from the land. So what in the world are we to do with the good God? You know, the protagonist practicing something detestable. And it really is an issue. What's going on here? I don't know. Notice, we don't see Joseph actually practicing divination. He just said he did it. Others suggest that this was all happening before the law was given in the next couple of books, Exodus and Leviticus. I suppose it's possible that Joseph used the cup to discover truth, from, not from demons or false gods, but from, the, from God himself. I, I don't know. It is a bit challenging. What we do know is that he had this specific cup placed in Benjamin's sack. Why? 
Because this would be the ultimate test of their repentance. Had they really changed? Joseph wanted to see how they would respond to this new favorite son. House steward. Um, I'm assuming it's the same house steward. Seems to me that there are three people who know what's going on here. There's Joseph, and there's this house steward, and there's, um, oh yeah, God, the main actor. He overtakes them, and he accuses them of stealing the cup. The, the, the brothers give a threefold defense, actually, in, in the corresponding to each of these verses. First, they take an oath in the form of, far be it from us to do such a thing. Literally, what that means is, we swear we didn't do it. Uh, secondly, why would we steal? We've proven we aren't thieves. We brought the money back from last time. Third, so convinced are we of our innocence? If anybody has it, you can kill them and the rest of us will be slaves. We are confident of our innocence. Now, the steward, knowing they actually not only have the cup but the money, say, okay, it'll, it'll be as you say, but it isn't as they say. He changes it. There's not going to be any death here, but whoever has the cup will remain in Egypt as a slave. Does that sound familiar? And the rest of you will be free to go. We know Benjamin has the cup. Here is an opportunity for the brothers to get rid of this second favorite son with no wrongdoing. I mean, the, the first favorite son they sold into slavery in Egypt. The, the, the second son, same result, only he'll be there because of his own wrongdoing, not theirs. What will they do? They lower their sacks. Steward starts searching. Now, now remember, the money had been returned. And no mention is made of that, but, but we know that. He, he, he searches Reuben's sack, and then Simeon's, and then Levi's, and then, and then Judah's. And every sack, he keeps finding money. Their hearts have to begin sinking. They're thinking, we're in big trouble through 11 sacks. Money, 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 all the way to the youngest. And what does the steward find? Not only money, he finds the cup. How would these brothers respond to this significant test? Have they really changed? Verses 13 to 34, the penance. Let's look at that together. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there, and they fell to the ground before him. Joseph said to them, what is this deed that you have done? Do you not know that such a man as I can indeed practice divination? I mean, don't you know I can figure this out? So, so Judah said, what can we say to my Lord? What can we speak? And how can we justify ourselves? God has found out the iniquity of your servants. That's interesting. Behold, we are my Lord's slaves. Behold, we and the one in whose possession the cup has been found. But Joseph said, far be it from me to do this. The, the man in whose possession the cup has been found, he'll be my slave. The rest of you, go in peace to your father. Judah approached him and said, oh, my Lord, may your servant please speak a word in my Lord's ears. And do not be angry with your servant, for you are equal to Pharaoh. My Lord asked his servants, last time we were here, saying, have you a father or a brother? We, we said to my Lord, we have an old father and a little child of his old age. Now, now his brother is 
dead. That's, that's interesting. And he alone is left of his mother and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, bring him down to me that I may set my eyes on him. But we said to my Lord, the lad cannot leave his father. For if he should leave his father and his, his father, his father would die. And you said to your servants, however, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you will not see my face again. Thus it came about when we went up to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. We told him what you said. And our, and our father said, go back, buy us a little food. We said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother is with us, um, then we will go. If not... We won't see him. Your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. Really? Two? And the one went out for me and, 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 said, and I said, surely he is torn to pieces and I, and I have not seen him since. If you take this one also from me and harm befalls him, you will bring my gray hair down to the grave, down to Sheol and sorrow. Now, therefore, when I come to your servant, my father, and the lad is not with us since his life is bound up in the lad's life, and when he sees that the lad is not with us, he will die. Thus, your servants will bring the gray hair of your servant, our father, down to the grave in sorrow. For your servant, I became surety for the lad to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then let me bear the blame before my father forever. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the lad, a slave to my Lord, and let the lad go up with his brothers. For how shall I go up to my father if the lad is not with me? For fear that I... See the evil that would overtake my father. That is an incredible story. Verse 14, notice Judah and his brothers return to Joseph's house. The spotlight is continuing uh, to turn toward uh, this new emerging leader. How will he act? This, this is now the third time that the brothers are falling on their faces before Joseph. But, but notice the progression. The first time, they fall on their faces before a superior. He's the prime minister. The second time, they think they're in trouble. When they fall on their faces begging for mercy, we don't know how the money got in our sack. The third time, they fall on their faces on behalf of Benjamin. They were free to go. It was Benjamin who was in trouble. And it is at this point that we arrive at true repentance, beyond sorrow, beyond divine re a recognition of divine re retribution. We arrive at changed hearts that produces changed actions. You see, I'm going to suggest this morning, you can't say you know God if God is not in the process of changing your heart. Joseph says to them, you guys aren't very bright. You stole a diviner's cup. Don't you think that I have the ability to divine? That's why I have the cup. Don't you know I can figure this out? At which point Judah, that emerging leader, speaks up. And there are now four ways that we see true repentance in the lives of the brothers. The first is actually back in verse 13. They're at the roadside. 
Uh, they said, whoever has the cup will die. The rest will become slaves. Steward fixes that and says, nope. Whoever has the cup will become the slave. The rest of you are free to go. Cup is found with Benjamin, the favorite son. They were free legitimately to go. And don't forget the money. They have money. They had money when they sold Joseph, the other favorite son, into Egypt. Then they left for home with money. They could do the same thing again. And they didn't have to devise a plan to get rid of Joseph. It was presented to get rid of Benjamin. Cup is found in Benjamin's sack. And we read, they all loaded their donkeys and returned to the city. What? Not, not just Judah who had pledged himself. They all returned. They were free to go. They didn't have to re- re- return Even when they appeared before Joseph, he said, hey, I'm only going to keep the thief. The rest of you can go. What would they have done 22 years before? Then all they were concerned about was themselves. They would have left. They would have enjoyed the trip. Got rid of that little sucker. Judah could have gone back to Joseph. Think about it. He could have gone back, I mean to Jacob. Judah could have gone back to Jacob, too many J's, and said, I know I promised his safety, but come on, Dad. How how did I know that he was a klepto? How did I know he was going to lift the cop? But hey, here's Simeon. They had every opportunity to save themselves. Self-preservation is, after all, a natural human response. Second, we see the brothers acknowledge their sin, and I'm going to suggest against Joseph. It's very subtle, but look at verse 16. What what can we say to my Lord? What can we speak, and how can we justify ourselves? That is, how can we prove our innocence? God has found out the iniquity of your servants. The iniquity of who? The iniquity of Benjamin. He's the one who stole the cup. Is it possible, as many, I think, rightly suggest, that Judah is talking about their collective sin from 20 years ago against Joseph? We don't deserve punishment for this particular thing. We didn't take the cup. But we're guilty. We deserve punishment for our action against Joseph. We sent him to Egypt to be a slave. Now, the prospect awaits us, and we deserve it. Is that possible? We have to at least say that Judah was acknowledging the corporate sin of the brothers, whichever sin is in their mind. He's at least identifying with the sinful brother, who happens to be the favorite brother. I mean, when Joseph said that, hey, you're all free to go, except for the one who took it, they could have all taken a step back and pointed at Benjamin. That's what they would have done. But they're different people now. Because God works in the lives of His children to bring about change. 
It's how we know that we're truly his children. Third change we see is the concern for their father's feelings. That's a little different. Judah, as he speaks to the prime minister, recounts their history. Uh, By the way, this is the longest single speech in the book of Genesis. Why do I point that out? Because Judah is frantic. He is serious in his attempts to save his brother and spare his father. Key words in his, this long speech, servants, we're your servants. Lord, you're the Lord, and Father, that's who I'm concerned about. Last time, Lord, you, you asked us about our father. You asked us uh, about this little brother. We, we, we told you about them. In fact, we told you that we, had, we, we, we did have another brother who's now dead. That's different. From a brother who is no more to a brother who is dead. Is it possible that Judah is owning up to his sin against Joseph? We killed him, or at least we led him to his death. You said, go get your other little brother, bring him back. We went, brought him back. Verse 27, I mean, we went back to Canaan in verse 27. Dad said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. What about us, Dad? What, 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 what about, we're your sons too. They gave this constant reminder that they don't compare. One of those two sons went out, and I have not seen him since. If anything happens to my other favorite son, I won't survive. Right there, Jacob reminds them, I have another favorite son, and you are not him. How would they have responded 20 years ago? But God is active in the lives of his children, changing us. Completely opposite. Then they had... They, they, they had watched dad mourn. When they heard the story about Joseph, we read that he tore his clothes. He put on sackcloth and mourned for many days. In fact, I want to suggest they'd watched him mourn for 20 years. Now, changed boys that they were, we read they tear their own clothes. I got to take the lad back. Fourth, most important is Judah's willingness to substitute himself for Benjamin in verses 33 and 34. Do you see the significant change? From let's sell him into slavery to I will sell myself into slavery to save him. You you can almost see Judah begin walking toward Joseph as he begins his speech. He's pleading with him. It's an amazing speech. And this is what he does. He casts off self-preservation. Let me remain instead of the boy. His Character has undergone now complete transformation. He's a changed person. Now he's not only concerned about his father and his, uh, 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 before he was only concerned about himself and lining his pocket, now he's only concerned about his father and his brother. Before he was well, willing to sell his brother into slavery, now he's willing to sell himself into slavery. I want to suggest that Judah deserved a Medal of Honor. Judah is now going to be the rightful leader of the group. And now we can speak of the lion of the tribe of Judah who gave himself up for us. The awakening of conscience. 
The brothers have been brought full circle from selfish, sinful, jealous, self-serving, hateful to loving, gracious, self-sacrificing brothers. One said it this way, in the crucible of crisis, the brothers respond with self-sacrifice. You see, God does a work of transformation and repentance in the lives of his children. And this is why he says to us, do not merely look out for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself and came in the form of a servant. How do I know that I'm a follower of Christ? When I see his fingerprints all over my life, transforming me into the image of his son. Let's pray. Father, what an, what an absolutely amazing story. And yet it, it, it barely foreshadows, it barely prefigures the giving of your own son, your own favorite son for us. And as you make us your children, you begin working in us to transform us into the image of your favorite son. Help us prove the reality of our faith by being like Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.